According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, we're coming to the end of the chapter, getting ready to wrap it up, and then move on to Proverbs 22. God is spirit, He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study of the Word of God this morning. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in Your faithfulness. The faithfulness you manifest again and again and again, Father, because you are eternally faithful. We call upon that faithfulness once again on this day to bless our study, to hedge us about and protect us, Father, to uh, to glorify your Son as your word goes forth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs 21. And uh, as has been common, actually, in several previous chapters, uh, as we get through uh, the bulk of a chapter and when the, fit, when the end of the chapter is inside, I don't know if, if maybe I get impatient or I'm not sure what, but you'll, you'll probably notice in your notes that uh, many chapters have a point similar to this one. Let's see. This one. <laughs> Where I tend to just get to the bottom of the chapter and say, all right, here's how the chapter closes and, and give you the the points pretty quickly after that. So that's what we have here with chapter 21. Chapter 21 closes with four verses detailing the pure simplicity of walking humbly with God. Four verses detailing the pure simplicity of walking humbly with God. And I do think as um, you know, we look at these uh, beyond just my own impatience to move on to the next chapter, I think as these Proverbs were compiled in this order. Remember Solomon didn't write these t- chapters with these verses in this order. These were compiled later and uh, in fact the whole section of Proverbs wasn't compiled until the days of, of Hezekiah. Um, but, but these Proverbs were put in this order and these chapters were structured in the way that they were. Um, and so I, I think what we're observing here is the uh, not only my observations related to how these chapters end but the, the editor's intention for how he closes each of these chapters out. And so um, we have four verses here, 28, 29, 30, and 31, all describing the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How simple it is to be walking humbly with the Lord. So in verse 28 uh, we recognize that there's the false witness on the one hand, but then there's the man who listens to truth on the other. And uh, the, the, the tandem of listening and speaking that's in, that's in view in both of those uh, roles. So the false witness will perish, but a man who listens to the truth will speak forever. And what a testimony that we have, not only to live forever, but to speak forever. That we have eternal life and we have eternal praise to look forward to because our testimony will not stop when we get to heaven. Likewise in verse 29, a wicked man displays a bold face. In other words, he has to put on a show. He has to be a phony. He has to, um, to, to present something that's not true and genuine. But as for the upright, there's a simple walk. We don't have to display a bold face. We don't have to impress people with, with how powerful we are, how strong we are, or anything, how confident we are. We're just walking humbly with our God. And uh, this is what God expects of us. So um, I kind of have Micah 6.8 as my backdrop for this that I think we're familiar with. He has told you, O man, what he expects. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And and really that in a nutshell is what we're looking at here in in, uh, Proverbs 21 and verses 28 through 31, the closing four verses of this chapter. Uh, Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's really not a complicated issue if, uh, if you're a believer, if you're saved and you want to live your life in the Word of God. That's as simple as it is. We're walking with the Lord. We then have um, in verse 30, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. The uh, blessing we have in walking with God is that we don't, we're not fighting against God. 
and we're not in an adversarial relationship because fighting against God gets you nowhere. You never win when you fight against God. God wins every time. And that's uh, what we're going to study today along with verse 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And there's important principles there too that I hope we understand uh, because some people get lazy and they don't even bother preparing their horse because they just say, well, the battle is the Lord's. I don't have to do anything. No, you still have better be preparing that horse for the day of battle or uh, God's going uh, to rebuke you for not preparing your horse. What are you doing? And so we, we do have to have human diligence on our end, and, but we don't rely upon the prepared horse. We've done what we've done in faith. We've done what we've done in, in normal human living. Uh, but still, that's not where our faith is. We're, uh, we're living our life as unto the Lord, and the battle is the Lord's as we understand it. So let's uh, pick up where we left off. And it was a couple weeks ago, because I missed last week. Last week I was at Schaefer in, in Houston, so uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. Subpoint A, we have an A, a B, a C, and a D, one each to go with these verses in uh, Verse 28, 29, 30, and 31. So subpoint A centers on verse 28. Listening and proclaiming the true witness. This leads to the eternal testimony. And if you say, well, I don't like to talk. Well, you better. You better like to tell about how glorious Christ is. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to, to praise, the, to tell the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light. And, uh, and, and if we're uncomfortable if we're uncomfortable talking about the glory of Jesus Christ now, then how are we going to do it forever <laughs> when we get to glory? And, and uh, we have forever to tell of His mercies, to tell of His grace. And um, not to, uh, let me just pick up on this. There we go. So yes, uh, we have the eternal witness that we're looking forward to. Um, the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. The man who listens is just he who hears. The man who listens. Uh, those words to the truth are not in the Hebrew. They're just kind of inserted to help the, the reader understand. But it's just the man who listens. And really that's who we are. We're believers. We, uh, as, as Revelation says, he who has an ear, let him hear. We are he who listens. That's us. And uh, not only saved, but disciples listening to the Word of God. And we get to speak forever. Not just live forever, speak forever. Eternal life and, and eternal loquaciousness. We wanted a, another L word and Ed helped us out with loquaciousness in uh, a couple weeks back. Eternal life and eternal loquaciousness. Malachi 2, 5 through 7. Just run through these real quickly. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence so that he revered me and stood in awe of my name. This is a great testimony to Levi the person and why Levi the tribe was selected to be the priestly tribe for the nation of Israel. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned back many from iniquity. Well, praise God. We didn't know anything about this. This is, this is kind of in between Genesis and Exodus, and we didn't know anything about this, just reading Genesis and Exodus. But here's a divine commentary about Levi the man, and, uh, and uh, evidently later in his life, because uh, all we really knew was that Levi and Simeon were pretty violent, and, and the ugly thing they did there in Shechem um, related to their sister's defilement. Um, anyway, we're thankful for this. This gives us a little glimpse about Levi the man uh, after... Uh, he arrived in, uh, and maybe even, maybe even before he arrived in Egypt, because we don't know in those years after Joseph was sent packing, um, evidently there was a real repentance and a, and a fruitful ministry on Levi's part after, after Joseph was, was no longer aware of those things. Anyway, he turned back many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And uh, boy, I tell you, there's application for us because we're priests in our, in our dispensation, in our application. And so we need to be listening to the Word of God and conveying what we hear, what we learn. We should be speakers. Anyway, so I appreciate that. Then we get to uh, Psalm 40. This is all review, by the way, from a couple weeks ago. 
Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. This is the blessing that we have to uh, declare these things. This is from the, the powerful Psalm 40 we studied out of the Hebrew series. It says it's prophetic of Jesus Christ. And uh, the ministry that he's going to have in First Advent, a body you have prepared for me, I come to do your will, I delight to do your will, your law is within my heart. And then the anticipation of testifying forever the glories of God. And then Psalm 89.1 I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Right? Remember that song? It's a, kind of a fun one. You could do that one at camp. You could do that one in different rounds as different voices come in at different times and, and uh, have fun with that. Anyway, I will sing of the chesed, the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. This is our blessing, not only to live forever, but to testify forever, to tell every generation, the ones before us, the ones after us, every generation needs to hear our witness of how glorious our Lord is. So I can appreciate that. All right, then we want to be upright and not phony. We're here to be upright and not phony. And the definition of upright, by the way, is not our own righteousness. We're walking in God's righteousness. He, he gives us, He imputes that righteousness to our account. We, we're living in the righteousness of Jesus Christ according to the standard of the Word of God. That's upright and not phony. This is the simple walk that acknowledges God in all our ways. As Proverbs says, uh, acknowledge God in all your ways. He will direct your steps. And we can appreciate it. It's simple. Just walk before Him. Psalm 22, 5, as He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's upright. Again, real quickly, just to refresh our thinking on this. Proverbs 21, 29 is our text today. A wicked man displays a bold face. We don't have to do that. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to have an external uh, vision of, of firmness. Okay? Footnote on that. Makes firm with his face. No. As for the upright, he makes his way pure. It's simple. It's not phony. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. Simple. I'm just walking with you, Lord. What's on, what's on the agenda for today? <laughs> what are we doing today? Oh, wasn't expecting that. Okay, well, God's in charge. He's faithful. Psalm 22, 5. Jesus on the cross. This is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. So we have a testimony. And when you're going through it and you don't see your answer yet, just keep rehearsing everybody else's answer. Just remind yourself that God has never let His children down. The one who trusts in Him will never be disappointed. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not put to shame, were not disappointed. There has never been, not once, not ever, and there never will be, a believer that was walking by faith, claiming the promises, and then regretted it afterwards because God let him down. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's a simple walk that acknowledges God in all our ways. This is what keeps a lament uh, a lament. And then keeps the lament from becoming the, the fault finding, the grumbling, the bitterness. Because you can voice all the trouble you're in right now. Nothing wrong with voicing it. God knows you're in it. Tell Him about it. But then praise Him for His faithfulness to see you through it. That way you keep it a lament and not a complaint. And actually, yes, Psalm 25.3. What a great promise. Another Davidic psalm, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. See, this is the real impact of soul life, the nephesh life. It's not just that my life is in His hands, my soul is in His hands. And so I need rescue. 
I need rescue so that this test I'm under doesn't cause me to turn bitter and, uh, and damage my soul in the, in the failure of this test. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause. That's the crowd that's going to be ashamed. But not the believer who trusts in you. No one who waits for you will be ashamed. This is the Old Testament doctrine of the faith rest drill. And guess what? It's the same as the New Testament doctrine of the faith rest drill. We're walking by faith, waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes will not be either disturbed, shaken, troubled. This gets quoted in the New Testament so many times because we know that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the, the costly stone, which we can th- be thrilled over. Of course, Israel stumbled over it, and this is uh, connected to the doctrine there. He who believes in it will not be disappointed, disturbed, shaken, uh, in a hurry, in a turmoil. The Christian way of life is a stable life. Not running to and fro, not racing about like a chicken with his head cut off, but just walking with the Lord and walking by faith. Finally, Isaiah 49, 23. Kings will be your guardians. Isaiah 49 is so fun. The promise of of the kingdom, the promise of glory, what Israel can look forward to for those that survive the tribulation, what resurrected Israel can look forward to for those that don't survive the tribulation. Uh, But the kingdom of glory and, uh, and the nations that are bringing them in know how much of this I want to read, but again, this is just a real fast recap to get us up and running again for today's message. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. So the Exodus was one thing. That was God bringing Israel out of one country, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea and bringing them into, into the promised land. After the tribulation, this is now global. And, and it's as if, you know, in the metaphor here, these nations are carrying the Jewish children to bring them into, uh, into the kingdom, into Israel for the millennial kingdom. So they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. So uh, political leaders, kings, and uh, wealthy men from all these nations will be your guardians and your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. The eating of dust, which we saw on Sunday with the serpent. Um, You will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. The promises again and again and again. Waiting upon the Lord. This is the application of faith. And there's never a disappointment. God is always faithful. All right, let's wrap up the chapter now with verses 30 and 31, starting with, don't fight God, (laughs) okay? Don't fight God. Fighting the Lord is useless. Fighting the Lord is useless. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord, okay? Now, we read that verse, there is no wisdom and no understanding and counsel against the Lord. And we say, well, yeah, what about? Because there is. It does exist, but it doesn't work. It does exist, but it's not successful. It exists, but it's foolishness. God says the foolishness of the world, or the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, even as God's wisdom is foolishness to this world. So by saying how utterly worthless it is, by talking about how it doesn't accomplish anything, it never succeeds, is, is, this is an idiomatic way of saying it, there just isn't any. There isn't any successful wisdom. There isn't any plot that you can come up with or scheme or anything that's going to defy the will of God. There's no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel that succeeds, that ever wins or has a victory against the Lord. It's not possible. Fighting the Lord is useless. One of the characters we're going to see in Genesis is Nimrod. And 
I'm just going to give this to you by way of preview because he was a mighty hunter either before the Lord or a mighty hunter against the Lord. And I prefer the against um, imagery uh, of, the, of the prefix, of the, the preposition. Well, he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. In his face, and really in his face, <laughs> as we, to, to use our, our current expressions. Um, Abraham was called to walk before me and be holy. Here's Nimrod who walks before the Lord and doesn't care. In open defiance, in full view of the Creator God and doing what he's doing uh, in the, uh, after the flood, in the full rebellion. We have prophecies related to Shem. He is the God of Shem. We have prophecies that bless the, uh, the uh, house of Japheth in the uh, tents of Shem. And, and then we have a curse upon the house of Ham. And then what do we end up here with Nimrod? What, is, what ends up happening here is Nimrod builds this empire in contradiction to the in def, open defiance of God who said to fill the earth, to spread out and fill the earth. And so uh, here's Nimrod. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. And remember, Cush is Hamedic. He's the firstborn of Ham. And so here's the firstborn of the firstborn. Here's um, the descendants of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, uh, Sabah. These names are hard to pronounce. <laughs> All right. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth, mighty hunter against the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter against the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went forth into Assyria, and built Nineveh, and Reboth Ir, and Kalah, and these things. And so instead of spreading out, he's actually consolidating and conquering. And it's going to result in a tower getting built in Babylon, in an attempt to live in open defiance against the Lord God of heaven. Anyway, it doesn't work because nothing works when you fight against God. Job 23, 13. He is unique and who can turn him? What his soul desires, that he does. It's a beautiful uh, expression of praise to our God. This is a definition of sovereignty. It, it, this is a definition that relates to the fact that God is the sovereign volition of the universe because he is pure actuality. He is. He is the I am. Whatever he desires to do, that he does. What his soul desires, that he does. So you and I may have soul desires, but we get overruled <laughs> because somebody in sovereignty over us doesn't let us do what we want to do. Or we just don't have the strength to do what we want to do. We don't have the finances to do what we want to do. We just can't afford to do what we want to do. There's, there's plenty of, of uh, hindrances to the exercise of our sovereignty because we don't have sovereignty. We're finite creatures. Not so with God. What his soul desires, that he does. And also pay attention to the soul desire because this connects to his character, his goodness, his righteousness. He can't sin. He can't lie because his soul doesn't want to. What his soul desires, he does. He performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are with him. And so anyway, Job realizes he can't fight God, but he wants to. He wants to voice his complaint. Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's the testimony. And he had to learn this the hard way. It was a long hard lesson for Job to accept that the suffering was in the permissive will of God. And that even if he never does understand the reasons in this life, he can walk by faith and trust that God is a good God and he had reasons and uh, may not learn those reasons until, uh, until he's face to face. So no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14, 27. What do you think of with Isaiah 14? The fall of Satan, right? The five I wills, Halel ben Shachar, that's Isaiah 14. And now notice, the Lord of hosts has planned, this is later in the chapter, after the fall of Satan is detailed and his judgment is pronounced. The Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? You know, 
When God reaches His hand now, there's no being in the universe that can grab it and stop it and turn it aside or prevent God from doing what God intends to do. As for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? So the plan is never thwarted. No one can step in with a better plan. Uh, the liar who said, I will be like the Most High God, he had five I wills and he's 0 for 5. He brings about none of them. Five failed prophecies as a false prophet. So no one can thwart God's plan. Isaiah 46.10. Great chapter. In fact, it's a lengthy chapter. It's connected to some nearby chapters as well. They all have these common themes that God is the only God and these false gods that are a bunch of posers, uh, they can't do what God does. It's proof that He is and they're not. And so um, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, that refers back to the angelic stewardship before humanity, from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So he announces his plan before the foundation of the world. The, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in agreement on this plan. The angels, a third of them weren't in agreement with this plan. When, when they learned about it, uh, a third of those angels could not abide by the wisdom of God. And uh, there's, there's other issues there. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. I will do it. Daniel 4.35 This is uh, of course a rebuke on Nebuchadnezzar and his arrogance. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar can walk around on a roof and be all impressed with himself and think that he built Babylon the Great. And uh, he's got to learn humility. And the angelic watchers are decreeing what it is that Nebuchadnezzar has to learn. It's what they have to learn. It's what the fallen angels have to learn, even, although they won't. They're not going to admit it until they're forced to admit it. But all, let's see. So after he had seven years with the mind of an animal, living in the backyard, eating grass, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. Humanity is a rational realm of existence above the animal realm. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Remember, he's a believer in this chapter. is why he's under the parental discipline of a father to a son. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So in both the angelic realm and in the human realm, God is sovereign. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, God can show up in the garden and, and say, Adam, where are you and what have you done? God can show up and demand accountability of a human being, can show up and ask Cain, where is Abel, your brother? God, of course, is the sovereign and holds all of us to account. But there's no one that holds God to account, that, that acts as his judge, that presides over God and says, what did you, you know, just what do you think you were doing there? No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So at that time my reason returned to me, my majesty and splendor were restored to me, only by the grace of God. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. I think this is the biggest miracle in the book of Daniel, that he gets his kingdom back after seven years. Knowing the history of the Babylonians and how many assassinations and how many stolen thrones and, and you know, the wisdom of Daniel, the grace of Daniel to act as a steward and to hold the throne, uh, to keep it together until Nebuchadnezzar could return to power. That's, that's, that's bigger than the lion's den or the fiery furnace or any other miracle you can point to in the, in the book of Daniel, I think. But God is sovereign. Fighting the Lord is useless. You know when they try to tell the apostles to quit preaching Jesus, 
Acts chapter 5. Remember this context in Acts chapter 5 and the Sanhedrin was ordering Peter and John to quit preaching Jesus. And they said, we've got to obey God rather than man. How can we obey your command to quit preaching Jesus when God has commanded us to, to preach Jesus? He's, he, he died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. We are His witnesses. We are commissioned to go to the ends of the earth to testify these things. Anyway, in the process of this chapter, yeah, so we get down to the end of Peter and John and their testimony. And uh, the council was just outraged. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now listen to this. Gamaliel's not a believer. Well, actually, I take it back. I believe Gamaliel is regenerate. But he's an Old Testament believer. Just given, given his age, given uh, likely a, a childhood salvation, given that, um, that, that he was an Old Testament believer looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Okay? So he is regenerate. We'll meet him in heaven. I don't know that he ever crossed into the church. I don't know that he ever became a uh, that he ever testified to uh, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. This passage doesn't indicate that. But here's Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, gave orders to put the men outside for a short time, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So he says, you know, recent history has shown we don't have to worry about these fly-by-night operations and these, these sensational uh, somebodies that, that come and go. And yeah, while he's alive and he's causing trouble and there were dozens of these, you know, claimants to be the Christ and, and all these things. But then they died and, and their followers dispersed and moved on to the next big craze, right? After this man... Another guy, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So that's two examples that they were very familiar with, Thutis and Judas, right? <laughs> so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone, right? We crucified Jesus of Nazareth, and so let it go. These, these flakes, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll eventually just scatter and they'll come to nothing and no big deal. Hopefully. Probably. Maybe. Unless. Okay? Then he admits to something here, which to say it out loud, I think takes a lot of courage on his part. Um, like Nicodemus and like uh, Joseph of Arimathea, there were a handful of others. I'm not saying that he was fully accepting Jesus as the Christ, but in, when he continues to watch that this does not go away, these, these disciples don't recant, you've got to wonder year after year after year as the testimony of the risen Christ continues, Gamaliel has to think of this and say, if this is from God, what am I doing? How can I fight against God? Which is the point. So um, anyway, in this present case I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Don't worry about it. It'll fall apart like everything else falls apart. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Just the fact that he's willing to admit this and to tell the Sanhedrin, think about what you're doing here. If this is of God, you will not overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. And remember what Pastor Bob says, fighting against the Lord is useless. Okay? Gamaliel didn't say that. I just throw that in there. You may, you may even be found fighting against God. I don't ever want to be in the position of fighting against God. Ever. No matter what. And, and whatever the application may be. We were talking this morning about a thing we're dealing with now. And, and you know, we, we have got to be humble before the Lord. And, and that includes everything. And um, we can't be fighting against God. 
All right, then uh, 1117. <clears throat> There's Peter giving his testimony, telling the crowd in Jerusalem that he'd gone to the Gentiles' house, he'd gone to Cornelius and, and had been speaking to them and, and they got the same Holy Spirit that the Jews got. Well, how about that? And so um, anyway, went to Joppa and remember the dream and he went to the Gentiles and uh, so he's telling the story now to the audience in Jerusalem. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. Just like He did upon us at the beginning. Of course, that's the day of Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. That's when the, uh, the disciples in the upper room, about 120 of them, received the Holy Spirit. That was the beginning of the church age. And anyone else that tries to tell you that Pentecost was not the beginning of the church age, ask them about this verse in Acts 11.15. Because this is at the beginning. If that's not the beginning of the church age, you tell me what this is. And there's, there's all kinds of, they're hyper-dispensationalists and I believe they're mistaken. The, the innocent, honest ones are mistaken. The not-so-innocent ones are, are evil. Because they're false teachers and they're evil. And, um, and they should know better if, they, if they're teaching progressive, uh, not if they're teaching the hyper-dispensationalism. Anyway. So I remember the word of the Lord, how He used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Okay. Not like I'm going to overrule the sovereignty of God and yank the Holy Spirit out of those Gentiles. Right? They got the same Holy Spirit we got. They were, and by the way, Cornelius was an Old Testament Gentile believer who crossed into the church age, just like Peter was an Old Testament Jewish believer who crossed into the church age. They were crossovers, not converts in the, in the book of Acts. Who was I to stand in God's way like I could hinder these Gentiles from coming into the church. So, when they heard this they quieted down and glorified God saying, well, okay then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So there you have it. There you have it. Fighting the Lord is useless. If, if God's doing something, who am I to stop it? Who am I to stop it? Okay? And so, uh, different issues there. And um, you know, a discussion about a pastor who, who years and years ago um, had, a, had a moral failure, he sinned and lost his ministry, lost his church, was out of ministry for years and years. And then um, God, uh, then he repents. He still has a spiritual gift. Can he ever pastor again in a different church, in a different state, to a different flock? You know, 10 years later, 20 years later, I mean, what, what kind of, does he have a life sentence? Or is he permanently banned? And, um, and there's, there's folks that think that he should be permanently banned, that he's discredited the ministry, he's discredited the name of Christ and so forth. But if Jesus opens a door and puts him in a different flock, who am I to not forgive and not put him in the flock? I mean, it just seems to me like you're putting yourself in God's position and you're not willing to forgive even as God has forgiven. If God opens a door... Are we fighting the Lord? What are we doing? So, now, I, I readily admit it's going to be difficult in his own church, but what if his own church wants to bring him back? What if his own church is, is forgiving and has grace? Saying, then I think it's really a win-win. All right. Finally then, the last verse, wrapping this up. Take appropriate actions, but know that the results are God's. Take the appropriate actions, but know that the results are God's. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. All right? That means we're taking appropriate actions. If we know that this is the battle, then let's get ready. 
Let's get the horse geared up. Let's get ourselves armored up. Let's um, do what we need to do to fight a battle. But victory belongs to the Lord. This is a complementary parallelism. This is, yes, there's a contrast. Yes, we, we, we recognize there's the earthly realm, there's the heavenly realm, and our faith is in God, our faith isn't in the horse. But see, some people abuse this. They abuse the principle. They, they say, well, you know, I will never leave thee nor forsake me, so uh, I don't have to take a job or make money or work or feed my family. God will have to feed me. You sluggard. Look to the animal sluggard. You're abusing one verse, you're ignoring a hundred other verses, and you're, you're twisting the doctrine. Get it right. And yes, the battle is the Lord's. And we're going to look at this here in 1 Samuel 17. It doesn't mean that we don't, that we don't uh, take the appropriate action. And they also abuse the thing when David took the armor off. Let's look at that. 1 Samuel 17. First Samuel 17, 38. Now there's a lot of lead up to this. And we know the David and Goliath story pretty well, right? So um, Saul and the armies are there and it's a standoff with, with the giant over several days as they're being taunted as, as Israel won't send a champion out to fight against Goliath. And then David arrives. Now he's late to the party, but he, he learns about it. He learns about it. So if I back up just a little bit. But, and, and David's actually shocked that um, no one's killed this giant already. <laughs> Including his older brothers. Why, why didn't you go kill that giant? Why hasn't the king gone and killed that giant? And, um, and then he's brought to, to King Saul and he says, I'm going to kill this giant. What's the, why hasn't it been done yet? Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with his Philistine. I'll do it. But see, now the king has to have faith in, in David to go kill the giant. Otherwise, they lose this battle and they become slaves to the Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. So I kind of suspect David's probably 10 years old at this point. David said to Saul, I've got history. I've killed lions, I've killed bears. Which I think is impressive for a 10-year-old. Was he 9 when he killed the lion? Was he 8 when he killed the bear? I mean, what age was he when he did these things? Your servant was tending the father's sheep and a lion or a bear came and I took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him, rescued it from his mouth. When he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Now that right there is just awesome testimony. Now keep in mind, you still have to do something. You still got to go kill the lion. You still got to go kill the bear. God protects you. God strengthens you. God works through you. God's the one that gives the victory. But you're still the, the instrument in his hand to kill the lion, to kill the bear, to kill the Philistine. So David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Now this is actually an act of faith on Saul's part to entrust his life, his kingdom, his, his uh, enslavement to, uh, to David. So Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head. He clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor now here's the, it's not a problem wearing armor. It's not a problem taking weapons. That's not the issue. If you think that's the problem, that, you know, that armor is bad, slingshot is good, because that shows you have more faith, you're missing the issue here. David would love to be properly armored, but he doesn't have time, and he doesn't fit right. He's too small, he's too young, and Saul's too tall, and all these other issues. So David girded his sword over his armor, tried to walk, for he had not tested them. You just can't grab a piece of equipment and use it effectively on day one. You've got to train with it. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. And David took them off. He's not worried about it. And he's not backing out. It's not a change of plans. 
So he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones. So he's not going unarmed. Why did he take five stones? Okay, you might remember there were actually five giants. Goliath's the only one named here in the, by name, but we're going to learn the other ones in a later chapter. Put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. His sling was in his hand. He approached the Philistine. Anyway, um, Philistine came on, approached David. We know the story, right? The Philistine looked at David. He disdained him because he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. I don't know what's wrong with being ruddy. You know, uh, what the color of his skin, the color of his hair, um, with a handsome appearance. Anyway, you look at a young man and whatever the prejudice was against redheads, whatever the uh, prejudice was against his youth, also against his handsome appearance. And you can get the idea that if he's, if he's a pretty boy, if he's, if he's good looking, then he's not going to be masculine or he's not going to be tough or he's not going to be uh, a problem in the battle. The Philistine said to the David, am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? Philistine cursed David by his gods. So it's a spiritual battle as well as a physical battle. David, uh, Philistine also said to David, come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you. Now he is coming with a sling and a stick and uh, five stones ready to go. But he doesn't mention any of that. He's prepared, like the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So he's not going to mention the armament. He's not going to say, this is going to be great because you got a sword and I got a sling. Okay? He says, I'm coming in the name of the Lord. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Tzavayoth, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. All this assembly may know that the Lord is not delivered by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hands. So please understand, I think this passage conveys so well the point there in point D. We do take appropriate actions, but we do also know that the results are God's results. However well we're prepared, whatever other actions we take, we leave the results in the hands of God. Psalm 20 and verse 7, let's wrap these up. And then i got a hot date with a birthday girl. So we're going to go. Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. There's a promise. Psalm 33, 17 and 18. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. See, I think this, this gets abused. It gets misread. It gets misapplied. Oh, a horse is a false hope, so don't bother going to battle with your horse. That's not what it's saying. Put all the scriptures together. Rightly divide the word of truth. Compare scripture to scripture. Don't ignore one to misabuse and twist another. Put all of them together. We do prepare our horse. A horse is prepared for the day of battle. That's good, that's right, that's proper. Do it. That would be like a pastor not studying, not putting notes together, not preparing a message and just saying, well, you know, the Holy Spirit will speak through me. I'm just going to get up here and wing it. Okay? And, and sadly, there's Pentecostal traditions that do just that, okay? I was told years ago, I'm wasting my time learning Greek and Hebrew. Just trust the Holy Spirit. I do trust the Holy Spirit, but I'm also going to learn Greek and Hebrew. Ecclesiastes 9.11 I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. I kind of thought fast guys win races. <laughs> Slow guys lose races. Warriors win battles. Well, yeah. Warriors also lose battles to better warriors. 
Neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Even the fastest runner can still trip and lose the race. The strongest warrior can still lose the battle. So yes, there are attributes we want to, you know, there's skill sets we want to develop. There's, there's uh, abilities that we want to train. But we still just trust in God day by day, walking by faith. You can be smart and wise, make great investments and lose it all. Time and chance overtake them all. There's things out of our control. And we do get old. We do miss a step. We do um, things happen we never saw coming. That's why we don't boast in our strength, our speed, our wisdom, our wealth, anything human. We're trusting in God. Anyway, Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn based on this verse too. Not to the strong is the battle, not to the swift is the race. But the true and the faithful. All right. Well, next week we'll come back and we'll get our first look at chapter 22. We have um, the 24th, today's the 17th, the 24th, and the 31st. So we got two more, we've got two more Wednesdays, the 24th and the 31st, and then we'll have a break. Um, no Wednesday mornings uh, in the month of April. Possibly we could have one on the 28th, but just stay tuned because that's, I'm going to have cataract surgery. So I'm going to Ukraine, and when I come back from Ukraine, I'm going to have cataract surgery. So uh, it may be that we won't resume Proverbs until, until May. But anyway, we'll have two more here uh, next week and the week after. So uh, keep an eye on your email and we'll, we'll try to keep everybody updated on the schedule. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth, for this time together. Thank you for protecting us, Father. Uh, we do pray for the, the visitor we had this morning. And I don't know who he is or where he's going and um, the phony license plate on his truck, but Father, it's, uh, it's in your hands, and uh, keep them from coming back, I guess, or bringing us to harm. Um, be faithful, Father. We uh, thank you and give you the praise and glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.